This is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard Cleveland's Live It Down. This is the second track that I'm playing on this show because they're that fucking good. Bob, that Bob Wilson kid from Philly, we talk about him a lot. He put he brought them down for a crazy show at Hangman in Simulacra. And this obviously last Friday was cold as fuck. And uh, I didn't know if people were going to show up because COVID and whatever, but the shit was packed. And these motherfuckers get on stage and, and and literally annihilate the place. And I've said it before, I'm a huge mark for the entire Cleveland hardcore sound. But this is just guys who just know how to play it and bring it back to that insanely iconic regional sound. But the it, it's so good, it stands on its own. And them live is just as fantastic. Um, I heard that they're going to be doing a record with Bob's label, Rebirth Records. So happy to hear that. Make sure to give them some love. Live It Down Hardcore Bandcamp. Check that track out, Descend. That's like the fourth song in the list of songs. We played the first opening track, I think, back in November when this, or December when this thing came out. But incredible band from Cleveland, Ohio. And a constant play going forward in my head these days. Well, here we are. We're back in a lot of ways, and I'm going to get to that. But before I can do that, we got to talk about some shows coming to the Philadelphia area. Obviously, the Madball show is postponed. We're going to get that together for you. Um, this Friday, no, next Friday, rather, we have the Casualties, Rotten Stitches, Stolen Wheelchairs, and Pissed at the Church. Then we have Bad Luck 13, Punishment, Departed. Off the Tracks, Cycle Abuse, Sunday, February 20th, 2022, 22 years after the first Punishment show at the Kill Time. That's going to see some fun. Old friends, good times. We got so many fucking shows. March 14th, we got Drain, Pain of Truth, Ingrown, Chemical Fix, Combust. Um, we got March 18th, Karma, Dare, Choice to Make. Um, the best way to do is go to phillyhcshows.com. We got so much going on and so many more cool shows getting announced in the next couple of days. So make sure to go to the website, check out, support the bands. 
at Philly HE shows on Instagram and Twitter. And uh yeah, twenty twenty two is something else. Um the show that Bob put on with Gold sold out in three minutes. The shows for Earth Crisis Strife, Snapcase, those shows are sold out. The Converge show March 10th at Underground Arts is sold out. Uh, the crowds are coming back. Things are coming back. And a lot of that will tie into what we're going to talk about on this podcast. But uh, before we do that, Boston Hardcore, long-term, long-time friend, great human being, Jimmy Flynn. Another good GoFundMe situation. Do your best. You can follow him at Hardcore Stadium on Instagram. This is a lifer. Longtime Boston dude. Heart bigger than half the fucking earth. And he's going through some shit, man. Uh, Make sure to support. We'll put links up for that. But this is what we got. We got each other. We got to help each other out. So, support. Now, before I walk into the theme of this episode, I'll say that I appreciate everybody who has been reaching out for the last couple of years and just being like, hey, can't wait for this hardcore. Just telling us what this hardcore meant to them. It meant a lot to me to hear people still think about this in these dark times. So, thank you very much. And... Also, a little love to my friend Dave Foster, Ryan Braces, for their efforts with United Blood, and the what's it called? The winds of change have come, and United Blood will not return. So, kudos to those guys. Um, Dave Foster, long-term Pennsylvania resident, moved to Richmond, and got really involved and brought something special to a time in hardcore where there wasn't really a lot of big shows in that time, like March, but it was really good for spring break, I guess. Richmond has always had a solid hardcore scene, but definitely elevated the importance of Richmond and gave a lot of people like the Atlanta, the Atlanta bands and stuff like a part of the hardcore world that didn't really have the crosshairs on it brought a little light to that world. And Ace is going to be continuing that with his thing. But kudos to Dave, kudos to Ryan for putting their best foot forward and continuing something that sometimes is a arduous and thankless task. So thanks, guys. This is an interesting podcast for me to put out, mainly because... In the duration and lifespan of this podcast, I've spoke about This Is Hardcore consistently from a past point of view with hopeful moments of potential upcoming and the plausibility or the lack of plausibility during this incredibly frustrating and bizarre COVID pandemic period. And... Today's podcast comes off of a couple fortuitous things happening in not only our world as a general populace, but also for hardcore and for me and for Philadelphia in that we are going to do a This Is Hardcore 2022 and it will be back 
at Franklin Music Hall, which was formerly known as the Electric Factory. Sentimentally, for me, this is just around 10 years since I went to the Electric Factory, not as a fan or as a guest or just hanging about, but to hang out with my mentor, Brian Dilworth, who unfortunately passed away on us in March of 2020, which I'll get into in a little bit. And it was that meeting that basically ushered in a completely separate era for This Is Hardcore Fest, which probably a lot of the people who are listening to this now probably may never have been to the first venue, the Starlight Ballroom. But the meeting was called upon some conversations Brian and I had had on the telephone, mostly regarding stage diving, mostly regarding layout of the venue. And I think I learned a lot about Brian just in that day in that we met up and... I thought it was like, hey, let's go sit in this office. And really what he did was got me on the top of the stage. I was like, look, I I know you're trying to do some like stage diving shit, but can you see yourself jumping off this? Or could you feel comfortable thinking that people should be jumping off of this? And for those who don't understand, the stage that we've used for the Electric Factory era of the fest has always been a built-out, lowered stage in front of the main stage. And the curtains behind the the videos, if you've seen 856, the pictures, that covers the actual stage. And only two times, once in 2013 when Guar headlined, and once in 2014 when, the, when Bad Luck 13 had people on there, was there ever use of the actual venue main stage. The real stage... It's quite tall and not even viable. We already have enough people hurt at this hardcore as it is from stage diving. We definitely didn't need that. And to be honest, it was good to have that walkabout. And he showed me a side of him in the sense of like not being like sometimes in the professional music world I've been treated with. It's our way or the highway, take it or leave it deals, which, you know, doesn't really go well with what we're trying to do. What Brian did was try to acquiesce what we wanted to what they could do. And another big person that's still alive and kicking is Jerry Market, one of the greatest venue production managers and crazy people in the history of music, I think, who was able to meet between what Brian was saying was that we couldn't use the main stage for stage diving and figured out a way to give us what we wanted. And Jerry consistently is always doing that. We'll talk more about Jerry in a bit as well. But what had happened was it was time to to make some real moves. You know, um, a quick backstory into the process. And a little history, very succinct, or succinct as I can get for fucking how much I just blather on. The first, this is hardcore, was an idea that came from the 
understanding that there would be no sync with Cali, which was the precursor to what would become Sound and Fury in California. Al Brown and Dangers and all that crap had decided to no longer do his thing. Posse numbers in Wilkes Bar had decided they were no longer going to do their thing. And Hellfest, which had been something that was huge in Syracuse, which had migrated to Elizabeth, New Jersey in 2004, fell apart completely in 2005, which was supposed to be in a giant venue in Trenton, New Jersey. The fallout was Sean Agnew, Robbie Redcheeks, Rich Hall, Tim Bohr, and anyone in the tri-state pulling any bands they could into massive last minute, like I'm talking about 28 to 38 to 48 hours notice to get these shows off the ground. And to my part, played security at the First Unitarian Church and the Starlight Ballroom and helped Sean just manage some of this chaos. And it's standing at the Starlight Ballroom, which is a couple blocks from the Electric Factory and a couple blocks from the Union Transfer and also the Underground Arts, was the, holy shit, people would actually come to Philly for a fest, which I don't think was in my mind until I had to physically see it. So that was that's the that's the genesis of could we do a fest and is it plausible? But it was on tour in Sh- with Shattered Realm in Europe. I like to just randomly write bullshit down or just notes and just things to put into my head, take from my head and put into pen. And I was on tour and I was really, really thinking about why the fuck can't we do a small hardcore show? I mean... If Posse Numbers could pull it off, we I knew we could pull it off. And so it came from a notebook. And I don't think I had a lineup ready to announce until May of that year. And again, it was only due to Sean Agnew of R5 Productions, who is part owner of Union Transfer now, and, and apparently a amateur free diver, world traveler, and still the most punk rock motherfucker in the history of the world who gave us our first couple of years at Starlight Ballroom. And we can talk some smaller ballroom in a little bit as well. So every year from January of 2006, this fest has been something on my mind. Which, which, at this stage in the game for me, constitute a huge part of my year. In fact, your mileage may vary, but I know Bob and a lot of the guys who have been putting on fests for years have been just like me, where it might be working at 2006, but there's going to be some no's, there's going to be some scheduling, there's going to be some things that pushes off the ability to book the exact lineup that you shoot for. And in the history of This Is Hardcore, in the history, I think, of all festivals and all concerts of any real magnitude, no one walks in and every band they ask says yes. It's never happened. It never will happen. Between scheduling money, other tours, it's just not plausible. So what I've learned is over the years is bands who can't make it one year may say, hey, you know what? Next year's actually going to be better because of a tour, because of a record. And so 
the the game never stops essentially, right? And that's kind of where I'm getting at with this whole thing about the backstory. From the day Brian passed away, I thought hardcore this hardcore rather was in jeopardy. He passed away the Monday. The Friday was when they were talking about lockdowns and the world was really talking about COVID. They were calling it coronavirus at the time. Within a month, I was insanely busy with working at Limerick, Pennsylvania nuclear plant, which is something that I do every year. And I was feeling like I was in the Twilight Zone or some dystopian novel that I grew up reading. And even then, when I'm grocery shopping out in the suburbs and everything looks like a ghost town, and Jess and I didn't even know like what to do. She had not been working because COVID, I'm working, and... You needed a piece of paper to carry with you to say that you were an essential worker, which in itself was now looking at it kind of laughable, but at the time was considered very serious. And there was moments on the highway where I was like, fuck, I hope I don't get pulled over and ask for this paper. And um, I even know guys who put their paper on the back window of their car just to be on the safe side of things. By May, it was seen as... A hard thing to pull off at the electric factory for a lot of reasons. And the electric factory had become the Franklin Music Hall in late 2018. And the ownership had shifted to an AEG Live owned venue. But Brian and the staff from the factory days stayed on for the most part. So 2019 was our first foray into dealing with AEG, but we were dealing with Brian, who was kind of like our shepherd and like wall of protection from the corporate stuff. But by May, it seemed like they were going in the direction that we saw where everything was shut down. There's going to be no large concerts. So in the chaos of that June, seeing some of the shit in the city, I was thinking, you know what? Fuck it. We could pull off something more punk rock at FDR Park. And they were even talking about a potential um, situation where the city was going to go and open back up. And that they ended up shifting that in July. We were looking at an August where we were doing two days at FDR Park. Smaller level show, but something sick. Something we could pull off. And... The, the wheels fell off the bus on that, and I really was getting bitter. You might even have heard it in some of the episodes, to be honest with you. Enter 2021, and obviously Bob and I were talking shows. Bob and I were talking. He was like, no matter what, fuck this, I'm doing FYA, and he really began then. And I don't think he ever stopped, but I really think that was when he started really thinking about it. And for me, the wheels the wheels weren't spinning. The, the emotions were there and the conversations were there. People were asking and, and it just felt as if 2021 was going to be bereft with the same kind of lack of enthusiasm from the AG live front in that the venue was not going to work. In fact, 
I'll say this in hindsight that the coolest thing that happened was that in order, Thompson Square Park in late April, the show in Pennsylvania late to June, man balled that before dishonor, cool hand, um, hangman, multiple home front chaos. That was the first PA hardcore show in a legal venue that was back on. Um, Shattered Realm and Face Wreck played in Pennsylvania the, the previous June at the old spot where Preserving Underground was when Pittsburgh was green, but Philadelphia wasn't. And that was attended by about, I don't know, 85, 90 kids. It was cool. And it was legal, but it didn't get as much fanfare. So the Manball show was really like the kickoff. The following weekend was, as we've talked about it many times, the year of the Knife Record release party. And I was blown away by the reactions and the amount of people who just drove to see a show. Bob then had the Philadelphia barbecue out in Sellersville, Pennsylvania. And that turnout was even more insane and just out of control. And we were having a feverish summer where lineups were getting these insanely beautiful crowds but the venue that I was using weren't really available or interested in the this is hardcore kind of thing and I had some people like you should do one anyway and I had some people like wait until next year where you can really you don't want to you know downplay it and there was also bands who there were bands who were getting ready for the Alabama Furnace Fest thing and I think trying to pull off something that wasn't that size. Bands were like basically just getting back into the swing of things. So I don't know if those bands who were expecting money or expecting the kind of money they're used to, if we could have given them something fiscally to match what that crazy thing was. And so another year off mentally. Not totally off because of podcasts and things and such, but not really putting everything into things the way I'm used to. So forward to where we're at. That was the backstory. I got to a point where I knew I needed a venue. Alternate venues were discussed with the individual people from those venues. But we got to go back to what I always know. You know, I was taught to keep things within the family and keep things within your own people, you know, build relationships when they go sour, you can always fix them to a point, but if you can really shit on a relationship if you don't work at it. And there were ups and downs on 2019 and 2000 every year. There's those ups and downs with the fest. But the last thing that I said to Brian, the last time we were at this hardcore together on the Sunday of 2019, he said he has to travel to New York And he's like, I just want to hear it from you. Like, no matter what, you're back in this room next summer, still doing this here. I said, yes, no matter what we have to do, the fest will come back to the factory one more time. We didn't get that, and he's not going to see it, but that stuff still matters to me. And so, thinking about how to bring a This Is Hardcore to the factory, which I I can say the factory. I'm never going to call it Franklin Music Hall, FMH. There's just too much. Don't even roll off the tongue, you know, so deal with it. There was a lot to reconstruct and, and redesign while maintaining the 
aesthetics and the stuff that makes this hardcore what it is. And I had to really focus and think about what I wanted from the fest. It sounds weird because obviously I want to say that the tenants that make a good festival are a lineup that will bring a lot of people to it. A venue that is capable, willing, and enthusiastic to bring the crowds in and be able to deal with the extra chaos that a three-day festival would have in a room. And a location that makes things somewhat easy for the fans so there isn't a struggle to with parking and there isn't a struggle to find places to sleep and there isn't a struggle to find food, you know? And I, I think that that is something that I could get my head wrapped around on, but I had to bury some of my sadness in the Brian loss. And, and, and it sounds silly, but it, it, to me, um, zooming out here, you know, my life has not had, this great, insane, positive relationship with my own father. So as early as I can recall, it's always been in people who are a little bit older than me, like big brothers and just other people, men-wise, who have been giving me the path and the information and the guidance. And every couple years, whether it's in the professional work that I do with the fest, with, with shows, or it's in the concrete world and then construction, there's always people that are a little bit older than me, not like my father's age, but you know, five to 10 years older than me that have come along and ushered me into new ideas and showed me different things. And I take that shit to heart. And so Brian was a big part of the last 10 years of my life. And I mean, it's fucking also bizarre that we're talking about the Super Bowl weekend and Brian Dilworth had the most insane Super Bowl parties. And if you would have asked me to come to a Super Bowl party, I don't think I've been to many. And then there was this time a couple years back when he was like, dude, you got to come over to the house. Like, come on, Tim will be there. You know, you're not going to like blah, blah, blah. And I had to put away my fuck football and the breads and circus arguments and just be like, you know what? I'm going to go have a good time. So Jess and I went there and it was outstanding. And it's like incredible what, Seeing Brian's like in his home, his energy, all the people that are collectively in the giant friend group, people from the venue, people from shows, people we haven't seen in years. It's incredible to see someone who has an incredible life, who did amazing things for so many years, surround himself with just awesome people, tons of kids, food, I mean, everything. And in 2020, broke my hand, was really feeling down, was not in a good headspace, and didn't go. And that would obviously be the last Super Bowl party. And I fucking feel like a such a dickhead for not going, not realizing it'd be the last time that Brian's going to do a Super Bowl party. So it's Super Bowl weekend 10 years later from when Brian and I first walked the electric factory. And 10 years later from me realizing that this isn't some fucking guy who just put on a lot of shows and is like a business guy. This is a fucking dude who loves music. He loves culture. He loves punk rock. He's famed for being the man who paid Fugazi more than anyone else. And, and who understands that it is in making the bands and the fans happy that make the show great. And instead of just trying to take money 
or do some illicit thing that would be put on people like that, you know? He really wanted to help this is hardcore grow. And so it's a lot of his work. Um, It was hard to get my head wrapped around the idea of a Brian Less festival. Now, to contrast that, when I was in the late 2000s, I started barbacking with Nikki, who is in horror show, and nothing. Chris Palmer, who we grew up with, was in Nikki's old bands. And, you know, a lot of my friends had always worked in the bars in Old City and in South Street and whatever. And I got to be a part of that world and make some extra money working daytime in concrete, nighttime bar backing. And Tony Bourgeois would eventually become like another really close friend of mine. She bartended at the um, Top Hat. And, you know, every Saturday night she's like, you know, it's her, Nikki, me, you know. It was just a chaotic time and a chaotic moment at the end of my 20s where I'm I'm working until fucking 4.30 in the morning, bar backing, still straight edge, seeing some of the craziest shit. Um, Tony has an amazing family. She, uh, you know, her wedding was awesome. She married Randy, who's in piss jeans. But she's been punk rock as fuck since day one, South Philly girl, just absolutely incredible. She went from being a bartender at different venues and the bars to being the manager of Union Transfer. And we put on so many cool fucking shows, the the Cox Bar shows, the This Is Hardcore Thursdays, just an incredibly supportive person to what we were trying to do. And, you know, she was on our team. So here she is running the venues, but she's on our team. Not with, not the, um, What's also crazy in that conversation, or the, the layout I just gave you, is that now Chris Palmer, who, you know, went from singing in bands, been Philly hardcore dude his whole life. Um, I could call him a Mayfair dude, but he's more of a Wissanoming dude. He uh, he went from being a bar, um, a literally like a dishwasher bar back, to being a bartender, to being manager, and now he manages Union Transfer. It's crazy to think of my friends who, when we, you know, who just put their whole ass into a career. That might be seen to some people as, oh, you know, this guy's just so-and-so. And now they fucking run a venue and they have a good living and it's their life because they put their ass into it and they work fucking hard and they know how to run shit. And they're punk, still punk rock as fuck. And so Tony's the manager at the Franklin Music Hall. And we only had one year of working together at the factory. And um, so I might not have Brian, but I got Tony. And... Tony's my girl, you know, I think that I was so wrapped up in the Brian stuff, I didn't take that into equation, to be honest with you, I didn't put that into the parameters, and then so, um, Kevin Horn is the guy who has been working with Brian for a bunch of years, and now is, you know, sitting there trying to maintain and continue the stuff that goes on from the Franklin Music Hall, all the different venues. He does a lot of different shit. And he's always been cool as fuck. And also committed to bringing This Is Hardcore back. And so, earlier this week we had a meeting. And it went great. It went so great that I was like choked up in the parking lot afterwards. and needed a minute just to jump in the car. Because mentally, not having... You know, I could think about the fest. I could write names down in a book. But 
having a fucking wall like the pandemic is so fucking hard to deal with it. And you know what? You know what? To be honest with you, we're not California. You know, we're not able to just get an underpass and do some crazy shit because everybody's here is, is a bunch of pussies. They're worried what Twitter will say. As showcased in the Thompson Square Park shit, the amount of people who ran their mouths and talked shit about the Thompson Square Park show and went even further down the Twitter, you know, pitchforks and fucking torches bullshit into calling it a white nationalist rally, which is bizarre as fuck, and and so many other stupid things. Just show me like, wow, like I don't even know I don't even know if the people who were saying these things on the internet even deserve to be a part of what I try to put together. And I realized, fuck it, you know what? This is a consumer-based universe. Everybody can get on Twitter and say something. I'm not going to let it get too deep. But it was it was disheartening because I know when when the when the things when the doors open back up, the same people running their mouths will be the same ones who are quite. No problem, no 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 beef, not standing there point that all these people who went to the show are pieces of shit, and they're still going to line up and go. And I was right. These people did go to the shows, and they do thank us for all these shows, and it's so bizarre. So yeah, we didn't have the opportunity to do it. This is hardcore, and it really fucked me up. It's the long and short of it. But not anymore. We're fucking back. And when I think about what this is hardcore is I, I'm I'm blindsided to a lot of the stuff because I have a couple different ways that I interact with it. Um, it's a bizarre thing to understand fully what it means to everybody because I do it for myself in that I love the challenge. I love the excitement of putting on something. But I stand there happy that people are having fun. Happy that bands are getting recognition. Happy that this culture is continuing. And I have a problem when I I can't see a way that this gets back. <laughs> you know, like something that I've been doing since I was 25 turning 26. And now I'm 41 turning 42. And fresh off the... I knew United Blood wasn't going to happen anymore, but knowing that, you know, now it's public and that things are moving on, there's only a couple people that I can recall or know that have never had a couple years off, and people that never stopped putting on shows. Shane Merrill has been doing it longer than me. There's a handful of people that I know now after 25 years of booking shows, let alone the festival stuff. And the new people are coming in and the new people who are now the standard, such as Bob. And, you know, like these people have fucking added a lot to this. But I I didn't feel like I wouldn't want COVID to be the reason why this is hardcore stopped. And it was hard the last two summers when it was around that time because people use social media and they start posting old pictures and old friends. And to me, it just reinforce that this is hardcore isn't just the festival but it's the connections with the humans that they love and the, and the time that people share and the correlation that helped really drive that home was going to FYA in 2020 and then returning in 2022 
in that we are not far from the world of like the tattoo convention or the anime convention or the horror convention. And for years, the bridge nine and the social media people would say, Oh, there's all these people that only go too fast and fuck them. And they're not a daily hardcore person. And I got to say that I've seen a lot of that. I've seen a lot of people that I don't know what they do for their scene locally. If they're even a part of their scene or if they're just an internet person who has a lot of friends because of the social media world. And it's in linking up in these festivals that we have. That is a bigger part of what their hardcore experience is. But taking ego and not trying to throw rocks at people out of the equation. The thing that I have tried to do with this hardcore relates to these kind of people is. Let's say. You want to do a show that's bigger than just six bands and, you know, the ticket price is a little bit higher and you want something epic. You're going to need people that are really excited to get together every year and come back and be a supporting role in it. And these people fill that to the T as well as I don't know how everybody runs their businesses with the fests and I, I will never say. I will often, I won't say never, often I, I don't really worry about how one person runs something. I do what I do. You know, we probably could charge more for tables at the fest. But maybe that table that we only charge to say, I'm just using numbers, is not really what we do. And to be honest, that's someone else's job. So I just get told <laughs> they got they paid already. I don't actually really get involved with the tables. That's someone else's job here. Let's say a, a, a table that another person might charge 500 to a thousand for maybe we only charge 250 or 300. I don't look at it as lost profit from the fest. I look at it as a label or a business or a person who's trying to do something, having a little bit more money that pays for them for their hotel. So that way they come back the next year. And from the outset at the old venue, starlight ballroom, there was no idea of merch takes and all this crazy shit. R5 Sean was and still very fucking punk rock, very much ahead of the curve with being the most professional but DIY promoter in a major market to the point where he still has, he still dunks on major, major companies, major people because of his relationships, his impeccable business savvy, and the ability to stay punk rock and DIY the whole time. But as we rolled into the factory, it could have been easy to, you know, start doing what some other festivals have done. Merch takes, limiting merch amounts, this whole thing, t- uh, t-shirt sellers, etc., 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 etc. But again, I want these bands to flourish. So if a band sells seven or eight grand, or even just two thousand or a thousand, whatever they sell, because of the size of the room that they're playing and the more people they're playing in front of, they're going to go ahead and get a surplus of finances towards them and a band who has extra money a band who has uh, the excitement of feeling supported and people going crazy that's a band that's going to try to push themselves even harder so this platform this this is hardcore fest you know this thing hopefully helps labels it helps bands it helps small brands it helps people connect it helps everybody Take this culture, take the things they're trying to do and drive them further. 
once the my body shuts down from all the work, there's a there's a like a cloud nine feeling for a week and a half of this excitement, and I just catch up with people, and there's so much stuff I don't hear about because I'm so focused on different things. I feel like I miss out on so many aspects of the fest, but the one thing that I really enjoy is having people hit me up and thank me, not because oh you're a fucking king or a wizard or some bullshit. It's good to know that this thing has had an impact. You know, like the new band, people got checked out. Oh, you know what? Um, this band linked up with these guys. Oh my God, you know, you know what these guys saw? We're talking about touring together. It's that community. It's that connectivity. You know, it's a building alliances. It's just the fun stories. And I think that that's the stuff that really is the fuel for the fire to continue doing this thing time and time and time again. You understand? It's not, you know... It's not accolades. It's, you know, like I probably could have a completely separate life or focus a lot of this energy into something different. But this is what I like to do. And it's been fucking hard. Um, My life is not and never has been picture perfect. But it's having a task, having something in the back of your mind, having something to focus on that's a constant that has helped me in some shitty times, you know? So, again, it's a different world today. There's a lot of different things to consider. The first, this is hardcore, was something I wrote down in a book and sent emails after emails and telephone calls and just trying to go ahead and make this happen. Uh, I, I always retell the story of Eddie Leeway having a show two weeks or so before the first this is hardcore in New Jersey and me trying to go ahead and get them to play. And I had like an hour conversation where Eddie was interviewing me to determine if I had the experience and accolades just put on a festival. And after like an hour, he's like, I'd love to be able to do it, you know, and maybe we'll get together, but we're already set for this one and we're not going to do another one. I felt so let down. And obviously, I'm a huge Eddie fan, huge fan of not just Leeway, but him as a person. He's been on the podcast. He's obviously still suffering from the cancer and beating its ass, hopefully. And it's in these fun relationships, like going from This Is Hardcore or going from a show at the church with Fearless Vampire Killers to Fearless Vampire Killers playing the first night of the first This Is Hardcore at the Starlight Ballroom to two years later us putting on the Cro-Mag show at the Broad Street Ministry, which was the first Cro-Mag show back with John, Mackie, Craig, and AJ. I know in the other episode I might have said Harley. That was a by mistake. Sorry, Richie, I won't do it again. But these relationships are built, you know, uh, through the years. This is Hardcore has had an insane roster of bands, and I'd like to get into that because I think it's actually kind of cool. So, essentially, This is Hardcore, <laughs> this is going to sound so fucking crazy, but to me, I can't fucking believe it. Since 2006, This is Hardcore has had 378 
nine bands play. Unique plays. Unique plays, okay? And what a unique play to me is a band such as, if if I'm looking at my sheet, like the first band on my sheet because they headlined the Friday night was H2O. Uh, And yes, I'm fucking crazy. I have an Excel sheet for this shit, but... H2O has played 2006, 2011, 12, 13, 15, and 17. So H2O has played six times. But if I scroll through this, Donnie Brook has had one time play, and that was the very first year, 2006. And so when I say This Is Hardcore has had 379 bands across 14 fests, uh, it averages out that every year... This is Hardcore roughly has about 27 bands that didn't play the year before. <laughs> I don't, obviously, out of 14 fucking fests in 16 years, it's crazy. <laughs> it's fucking nuts, you know? Um, uh, it, I, I, was, I always work off a sheet. I always work off Google Sheets now before it was um, Excel Sheets. Basically the same thing. H2O, Fearless Vampire Killers. Guns Up, the only time Guns Up ever played. Betrayed, they only played twice ever. Internal Affairs, only time they ever played. Tim McMahon's band, Triple Threat. Dude, they played twice. It was cool. Um, Ruiner, played in 2006. Um, Check out Rob Ruiner's episode of our podcast. Way earlier on, dude's awesome. And you know, he's actually got an MMA fight uh, next month. If you can check it out, check it out. He runs uh, Baltimore BJJ. Rob's still killing it. Um, yeah, the dude like Tever. Tever's played this is hardcore five times. But argumentatively, if Tever never played, Tever never said yes. I don't know how we would anchor the entire fest. I've said it before, but Scott Vogel and his support of te- of this is hardcore is a huge, 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 huge reason why we ever got off the ground. Um, Wisdom and Chains. Has only missed one year. They missed 2012. And um, they were supposed to go to Europe. Then it fell through. And Richie's like, nah, nah, nah. We'll take this year off. And I'm like, dude, don't do it. So Wisdom and Chains has played 13 of 14 festivals. With the exception of 2012. Cold World, they only have not played the last five. So they played the first eight. And they were one of the bands that would say they would play every year, but things change. Um, we've had Iron Age twice. That band, like it or not, bitter end. I like. Lo- I love scrolling through this also to remind myself not only what we've done, and like some of the bands you'd never hear about again. Attitude, COA. They played four times. Bob's Letdown played three times. I mean, all these are all friends. So many f- cool things. Uh, this is just all still, by the way, in the first year. Let Down, Blood Stand Still, Living Hell. And even like um, Colby, Colby Black, who had a big thing, um, did a lot of shows in Pennsylvania. He's like real big with the Urban Outfitters um, corporate thing. His band played. Obviously, Blacklisted has played every year except for the last five as well. Strength for Reasons played a bunch. Pale Horse. Um, Ceremonies played a lot. And yo, when we first did Ceremony, I mean, I knew people knew them. But I didn't think it was gonna like pop like that. It was insane. Um, in thinking about things now, I see people talk about Go It Alone. They played the first year. The second year is funny because we had Agnostic Front and All at War 
play and as well as have heart. And, you know, that was all on the Friday night. Agnostic Front, All Out War. John's band Blood Clot when it was Danny Schuler from Biohazard, Rick Lopez from Marauder, um, Scott Roberts, who would be in a Spud Monsters, he would front Biohazard, now is in the take. The heavier version of Blood Clot, that was one of their shows. Verse played, and that's actually the only year Verse played this hardcore. Um, it was the first year Rain Supreme played, first year Ringworm played. That band from New England, um, Ambitions, actually the only time we've actually also had Cast Aside. Rise and Fall, the only time we had Rise and Fall play. I mean, there are so many bands. It's just cool. I have this I have this whole Excel sheet. But I think about some of these bands. Like, you know, we only we don't get to do Crime and Stereo, I think, once, maybe twice ever. Madball, who was like a big deal to get for me, now, uh, <laughs> like, Madball's played this hardcore four times. Same thing for 100 Demons. Like, I was three years into the fest. I'm like, fuck, I gotta get 100 Demons, man. 100 Demons has played fucking the fest now fucking six times. We also did uh, Josta, which was like Hatebreed songs and some other stuff, like the Ice Pick shit. Like, that was a weird set, but we had it. Death Cycle, Ron's band was sick. Um, Comeback Kid was a headliner that year. Maximum Penalty played, um, which now I look at the chart... These motherfuckers have played the fest fucking six times. But, like, it's one of my favorite hardcore bands. I hope they play every year. A lot of kids ask about Killing the Dream and Alpha Omega. They've only played one year. That was 2008. Uh, War Hungry's played twice. And then also just, like, random bands. The Poverty Bay Saints, because Chris Williams was in that band. We hooked them up. Convicted, which would eventually the guys would go on to be at harm's way. Ah, man. You know, like, it's interesting. And then when you start getting into, for me, I love the ability to have like some older bands like the Visions of the World. You get a little Vision, you put a little Down to Nothing in there, some Trapped Under Ice. Now you got to, that, that, that's the kind of stuff I like. You always just see me randomly throw in old guy bands and like shit I grew up on, like my boys in Hard Response. Um, the Suicide File played the Friday night of 2008, or nine rather, and was one of the craziest sets to the point where we now had them back two more times the only time we had until the end play and then right i'm looking at the sheet title fight title fight went from being like an opener to um they opened in 2009 and then 2013 i believe trying to make sure i know my shit yeah 2000 it looks like 2013 or 14 they were the headliner, like that quick. Um, Zabalba just announced that they've been a band for 15 years. And, you know, their first time, their, one of their first East Coast shows was This Is Hardcore in 2010. I mean, it, there's so much to be said about the bands. Not just that, like, it's this isn't a cap up, this is a recap. Recap is shit we've done. But like um, in 2006, it was really hard because what was un unestablished or not established, and people were kind of like, "Oh no, you know that guy in FSU and all that crazy shit going on." You know, Posse numbers had a lot of fights the last couple years. Um, things were getting fucking out of control, wild as fuck. 
And I had to kind of show the world, like, hey, look, I can do a festival. No one's going to get fucking killed and all this other shit. And little by little, year after year, things got better. And in 2009, we had this fucking great lineup. Shit sold out mad quick. The first time we had Bane play. And the ball just started rolling. So then in 2010, I was trying to get burned. <laughs> so many weird stories about that. But ended up with sheer terror on the Friday night. And that was... Uh, huge, huge. <laughs> and then, um, the headliner, I mean, that was like the last four bands that night were like Sheer Terror, Marauder, maybe Horror Show or something like that. I don't know. And then a Horror Show was on the Saturday, I think. But it's still crazy to think about like that having Sheer Terror in 2010 and now it's 12 years later. And now I think Sheer Terror has been more active in... 2010 to 2022 than they were from let's say when they broke up in 97 they were at more active in the second half than in the first half of the band it's fucking crazy um there's always these little pearls like having um uh what is it called fucking stark weather play stark weather well one year cooper from clubber lang and dave sausage jumped up and during a Cold World set, they did some Clubber Lang songs. And then the next year, we actually put them on the bill. Uh, it was also the first year that Backtrack played the fest. A lot of weird bands you never see anymore. That Creatures band from California, that's the only time they ever played. Um, Obviously, the big sets like the Ink and Daggers. Like the, the randomness of the need to raise money for Max, Miracle Max. Inga Dagger wanting to do a show and then going to Kid Dynamite and be like, yo, we're trying to do something really cool like Inga Dagger, Kid Dynamite, Blacklisted, like in the three levels of like Philly hardcore. And to be able to make that happen was literally just one of my favorite things. And um, Jeff Rickley being a part of it. And then what so crazy that when we did the first promo for the fest with Hate Five Six Sunny. Mark Green would go ahead and make a joke about what are you going to do? You're going to have um, Jeff Wrigley go ahead and sing for um, blah, blah, blah. And they made some joke about, I want to see him for Turning Point or something like that. He made some joke like that. I fucked up this whole that whole joke, and now I'm going to feel dumb because I remember exactly what it is. And so I think it was him making um, – fuck, I fucked that whole thing up. Um. But yeah, it was basically him busting on us doing Inga Dagger with Jeff. He's like, how about him do, you know, Turning Point? Because obviously Thursday is a Turning Point track. And this motherfucker in <laughs> 2018 literally <laughs> sang some fucking Turning Point songs. It's insane. Like, I'm, in t- I'm insanely blessed that we had the opportunity to do some of this stuff. You know, like, it fucks me up. You know, it fucks me up to be like, you know, um, we did Youth of Today. We actually did Youth of Today with Ken Alden. And then we did, like, the, the return Youth of Today, which is even fucking nuttier. And, and But if you would have asked me in 2011, I thought, does that Youth of Today was sick as fuck. Purcell's, like, the only guitar player on stage. He's not even playing the guitar because he's, like, high-fiving people and jumping into the crowd. It was fucking mayhem. And that was the last headliner, the last Friday headliner of the last year of um, Starlight Ballroom. Before we switched over. Um, 
Hard Carl was talking to Hard Carl about this. And Hard Carl's like, how many fucking times do you put ke- Killing Time? And it's like, yeah, Killing Time has now played six of the 14 shows. And it's like, it's up to me, Killing Time could fucking play any and all years they ever want to do it, you know? Um, it, it, it's good to look over what I've done. And it's not a brag. It's just a reminder. You know, there's bands. There's a shit ton of bands. Like we had from one year we had Madball headline and from Ashes Rise played before them. And not that I forget it, but it's good to look at it and go, oh yeah, we fucking, that was totally a great set. <laughs> it's just like fucking putting, you know, the two craziest combinations together. And I did that a bunch with Madball. One time it was like Madball, it was 100 Demons, Painted Black, and Madball. <laughs> you know, it was like, I've always enjoyed these kind of like mixed bills. Um, so getting back to 2005 in the summertime. R5 has got a lot of shows going on. This 108 thing with um, with the return of Lifetime happens. Um, it the, the venue, Starlight Ballroom, was like a newer idea. Shauna did some dance parties. This may blow some of your minds. Um, Sean was very good friends with Diplo before he was ever famous. To the point where the dude would do just DJ at Sean's apartment when it was legendary like house parties and stuff. And those guys were known for having these crazy dance parties at the Starlight Ballroom. I've been to a couple. And initially the stage was like a steps, like gradual steps, almost like built like for a church or some kind of like reception situation. It wasn't like a rock stage. So the first time we did that I was present and like working stage security for that whole lifetime thing I was talking about, which is sort of like the onus for the, the Zarkor. We're trying to keep people from stage diving and getting fucked up. And it's literally like padded, slippery, sweaty madness on rugged steps. Mr. Chan and his um, family ran the place. Super crazy, very shady people, hilarious, just like funny Always like trying to get more money in the middle of the show. The toilets were always backed up. It was nothing but kids sitting on a hot pavement in a part of the city, which now, I mean, that was 2006. Any of you who came between 2006 and 2010, that venue was it. I mean, their electric factory was around. Shampoo was around. The time Union Transfer was still the spaghetti warehouse, and that whole area hadn't been really touched on and developed but it was coming and so the fest grew as that neighborhood grew in a lot of weird ways the FedEx building was sold Mr. Chan and them got that building and that's when those R5 punk rock flea markets got insane huge huge and that was like another aspect when the last one the 2011, we used that building for all the excess merch and people could hang inside. And that was like a lifesaver because from 2006, 7, 8, 9, 10, it was fucking madness. It was fucking hot as balls, August. Uh, Philadelphia is unbelievably humid. And then you add the heat bouncing off the asphalt and the concrete and it's sweltering. You got kids drunk in the parking lot, everyone's drinking all over. The chaos of what goes on inside. This, I mean, the venue was always packed to the brim. I don't know how anyone 
didn't just die in there from the heat. And we always packed it as much as we could. There's a lot of videos of me throwing kids off stage and yelling at kids, but you know, it was all chaotic. And um I don't I don't not miss them days, but I'm glad when we were able to switch over to the factory that we made a more accommodating presence. And in the last six months, I was really thinking in my head of going back. Starlight Barn was gone at some fucking building they bought, and now it's used for some commercial property, which sucks because it's such a cool venue. Uh, we can never use it for a venue, essentially. It's like some fucking, I forget what it is, some some plumbing supply or some shit like that, a refrigeration supply. I drove by, I was so disappointed. I thought they are going to knock it all down and build houses soon anyway, which is eventually what's going to happen. But when we moved to the factory, we were able to accommodate a different world. And I mean, nothing says change and progression as like the fucking Friday Night Headliner was Suicidal Tendencies. Like one of my childhood favorite bands. Still one of my favorite bands. And, you know, I won't say that it was stupid or we should have done it. But I think that we could have had almost anything headline. And people were just psyched for the fest, and it was cool to pay them and have them be a part of it. But I don't ever, I don't ever hear people like, "Dude, that suicidal tendency is one of the craziest stuff." It was kind of silly. They were playing like six minute versions of songs, but I'll tell you what, Mike Muir is the most down ass punk rock motherfucker, and still the coolest. And it was just a surreal moment to think about. Like 2012, 20 years before that, I was obsessed with suicidal tendencies. You know, as a kid, fucks me up. And we get to do something. I get to do something like that. But what I'm getting at with this is that the ex- the expansion of the stuff that wasn't just the bands on the stage and making sure we had tables set up for merch really became a whole thing in itself. And AC and Kevin and different people talked about it on the podcast for the Christmas episode about the setup, the breakdowns, the takedowns of everything. But it does become a part of what you do when you're at a place like the factory and you've got this massive building. And really quickly, when I walked in there, I was like, what's up with all this, like the, the stadium seating and all that stuff? And he's like, oh, nah. You know, they, they've even got some up like upstairs cabana, like private things you could use. You can like sell them off or let people hang in there or give them their sponsors. And I'm like, I just don't see kids sitting up in the balcony the whole fucking weekend. I just don't see it. And what I learned was that there are people who get there first thing, whatever day they can, and hold their spot down. And that people love the balcony. So it's like strike one, completely fucked up, and didn't realize it. People like comfort. And then I gradually am like, yo, you know what? I bet that is pretty sick to just sit down and chill. And it what actually at Code Orange... In Pittsburgh last year, when uh, we were traveling out to play some shows, we had to see the first Code Orange live show with Jamie fronting and all that crazy production. Chris and I were in the stands, and I later hung out with Maddie in the stands, literally just sitting down and watching Code with this crazy stage. I was like, this is the fucking coolest. And I totally was like, yeah, it checks out. I'd, I'd be cool to be in the pit, but <laughs> I don't know, man. Have a nice little seat, be able to hang out, get some food. <laughs> it might be the way. It's weird stuff like that that 
remind me of like the comfort of a this is hardcore because of the the factor the factory and the things that we have you know um the first two years in the back of the venue was just brutal fucking blacktop there was if it rained the night before there'd be a giant puddle um multiple friends of mine got stung by bees hanging backstage like back behind the venue in the shitty parking lot and then we started First, we started with billboards. Cracker brought a billboard from New Jersey, and we slung it over the fence, over the Shattered Realm van, and people were hanging under there. And then little by little, I started getting more pop-up tents and stuff, and then people started hanging, and then we started getting better catering, and then bands could come backstage and eat, and then it was like, backstage was out in a parking lot, but not a parking lot like 20 spots, like a small-ass parking lot. And then it became like, all the old Philly dudes and all the all the crazy people that come and hang and all the bands and it was like there was a separate fest park parking lot party the whole time, you know. And, and to the point where like until the, until like seven or eight o'clock at night, <laughs> it was colder inside. And it actually did get better with some aspects of the AC, but it was never felt like amazing. But you step outside and it's like I'm where the this is even the fest. It's just like a fucking like a block party and uh. What a lot of that stuff transferred over to the factory, and in thinking about doing a smaller venue and changing, I was like thinking about like, fuck, we go back to so much chaos that isn't show chaos. It's like people laying in the middle of the street on a hot sidewalk in Philadelphia, getting yelled at by somebody else in some parking lot because some kids are out there drinking, like. So many of these little things stopped falling on our doorstep when we got with the factory. And Jerry Market and uh, Keith, who was a bar manager at the electric factory, and um, Brian were really receptive and open to us just randomly stealing a bunch of bike racks and my sword fighting friends come and hitting each other. And I sword fought out there a couple times. And the constant building of the tents and bringing more tables created an atmosphere that again going back to when people were shit talking people who go to fests all the time there was a thing about oh these fucking people just hang outside the whole time they don't even want to see the bands and it's like i don't know man i i I, i've grown to accept that people want to spend their money as they wish and hanging out and seeing the bands they want to see, yeah, they're not going to see the new band coming up, and they may have to go to Hate Five Six and go, "Fuck, I missed them," or maybe they'll say, "Oh yeah, I saw them," but we know that they were outside the whole time and missed it. But ultimately, I, I don't think it's easy. <laughs> it's fucking hard, actually, to stand through a show that starts at twelve o'clock in the afternoon, and sometimes we're running over midnight. And so, if we could give them the accommodations. Um, we had some people like Liam and Jen and different people who were coming in and bringing cool food trucks and ideas to make the backyard a better place really helped accommodate. And I, I that was something that I was concerned with was the smaller the venue, if we were going to go somewhere else, the lack of accommodations or the hard discussion of the no reentry shit, which obviously was fun for us to fuck around with. But ultimately, in this day and age, it's uncommon to have something that runs that long and no reentry for a lot of reasons. And so, you know, it's fun to like look back in time on like what we did and some of the wild shit. But it would have 
there would have to been some real weird stuff in the way that we could make the factory shows happen for the summer for me to have to pull out. And I, for a while, I was concerned that it wasn't going to happen. Um. Now that part of me is gone. I know that this thing's going to happen this summer. We are working very hard to bring the things that we've missed back. The Friday night is going to be at Underground Arts. We're going to continue the three-day situation, but for us, we're going to do a Underground Arts Friday and a Factory Saturday and Sunday. So we will have available three-day tickets. The first one just will be at the smaller room. And for those who are trying to get hotels or listening, they're like, oh, how's that going to affect the fa- the the electric factory is on 7th. Right in, at, in the one corner is basically Callow Hill. The venue is at 12th, so it's five, five city blocks away, so you could walk there. It's like a 10-minute walk or so, but you can walk there. Funny enough is... Seven is the factory. Nine is where Starlight Ballroom is. Eleven is where Union Transfer is, and twelve is where Underground Arts is. Like they're within um the pier, like the blocks of Spring Garden and Callow Hill Street. There's all these venues in this area now, and actually Voltage Lounge, which hit or miss if they're going to open back up. What the fuck they're going to do? That was in the uh, complex with the factory. So we're going to keep the show at three three days. There will definitely be some pre-shows, but that won't be ticketed. So when we do an announce, which I don't know the date, we'll have an announcement. You know, a couple days ago, I was literally going, like thinking of the good that comes with the factory, the bad that comes with the factory, the good that comes if we change and move on. I was thinking about going back to when things are smaller and bands aren't just immediately showing up and being like, Jerry Maguire, show me the money. Where we could have like a good show, but not needing to start bringing in giant outside talent that's just on the precipice of, yeah, they might have played hardcore shows, or you know, they have a connection to the hardcore scene, but it's not you today, Gorilla Biscuits. It's not fucking Terror Manball. It goes outside of that, and I didn't want to constantly be mixing that in the headliner world, just so that way we could fill a room. And it was, you know, because you're playing it with different people. You're playing with people that they don't need the exposure and they'll do it, but it's got to be under these conditions. And I like the fluidity of bands being excited to play. Not to say that the bands hadn't been playing, but for me, I might spend a week and a half. I might spend fucking two months trying to get a band locked in. And it's always been tense when we're trying to bring something different to the table as far as an artist who, you know, in the case of Saves the Day, I can't fucking explain how easy that was. They're like, yeah, I mean, we killed it at Bane. Why wouldn't we fucking play? And then as long as we could do it, and then there was no, like, the, the, there was no arbitration of money. It was just like, all right, this is what, yep, cool, done, great. They played on a Saturday. They were, they stayed Sunday night and were so fucking excited about Gorilla Biscuits and hung out with them guys and, like, it's refreshing to see that people who I met in my teenage years at hardcore shows go off to be in this bigger fucking band that did so much for punk music and, you know, all of you people listening, all of your favorite bands are probably influenced or, you know, say they might be one of your favorite bands. 
It was cool to do it, and it was cool to see those guys stay punk rock. But in the longest stream of things, eventually you can't just get those guys. You might have to get, like, the next one, and then the next one, or the metal stuff. And, you know, it's cool that we end up doing the last Dave Brocky-fronted Guar show in Philadelphia. But that felt a little bit off from the usual, this is hardcore headliner and stuff. So, in trying to find balance, I was concerned about the different things that would take place and how could keep the spirit of the family reunion part of this is hardcore and keep the spirit of making sure the bands are coming up the old bands are there and they're not forgotten about and that treat the fest like well you got to book people for the first time they're seeing this band or you got to book people saying like yeah they've come to four festivals already this year so you got to make sure you're doing something that stands out and is different and luckily because of this is hardcore and its legacy and for the fact that i've been booking shows this long I have that ability, but the dry start is hard. Going back to what I said in the very beginning, where my brain is like, fuck, I haven't been pushing, haven't been keeping these conversations going. When someone asks me, are you doing it? I'm saying, I'm going to do it unless they stop me. You know, and we talked about why it was stopped. And so in this conversation I've been having with you guys here, it's a very bizarre thing for me to think about. This is Hardcore Podcast Finally talking about a future, this is hardcore. And relative to it, obviously, I I would say I go back to the old sheets. I go back to what did we do last time? What, what, What was the things that were on the table? You know, like what was the, where were we at? And, and I think that it's important to do that, you know, for a multitude of reasons. Um especially for me, like for me specifically, I think about the last year we did. You know, like the last year we did was something different. And I talked about it a little bit. We had a headliner that was set to play on Friday and last minute they pulled out and couldn't make it happen. And, and that's like one of these things that happens, usually not in the headliner phase, but it's so fucking hard. And then, you know, you're, you're in now, you're in trouble because you need a band. You don't know who you can call. And you don't want to just like fucking say, fuck it, I won't do this. And a couple of times, I'm like, yeah, I'll just, I'll cut some bands from Saturday and Sunday. We'll just do Friday. And I was like, oh, fuck. You know, it'd be so hard. And so, you know, recapping and touching on 2019, I basically begged, pleaded, and bullied Jamie Morgan from Code Orange to do Code one more time. Unbeknownst to me, because the dude's my friend. He wouldn't tell me, hey, by the way, I'm not going to be the drummer anymore. I'm the singer. We already have someone. And he was like, dude, let me do it. Let me, you know. And ultimately, he's like, you know what? Code Code Orange has a lot of history with this hardcore. We have a lot of history with Philly. We got a lot of history with you and Bob. We'll step up and do it. If you can't get somebody else, we're not going to let you without a uh, band headlining. And they came up and did it. So the Friday night was Code Orange. And that ended up being the last time Jamie fronted the band. 100 Demons, which was insane. Harm's Way. Uh, Who would have thought that that would turn into a weird meme internet moment the last time that they played? All At War, to this day, one of my favorite sets. One of my favorite bands. You know, wish I could just have All At War every year. Jesus Peace. Philly Standard. You know how that goes. One of them... Highlight real moments. Dead Before Dishonor, really, I mean, with that new record they had out at that time, dude, absolutely annihilated it. Uh, Inclination, dude, that was so sick. 
Eternal Sleep. We haven't had them in a while. It was cool. They played Bloodbather from South Florida. For those who didn't check out Salem Vex is like in the first 10, 20 episodes of, of this podcast. Uh, we had Enemy Mind. They were incredible. Uh, Face Wreck and Payback. You know, like fucking great way to start. Payback and Face Wreck. And then Enemy Mind. It was fucking sick. Um, Saturday, Section Hate. Anxious. Shackled. Drain. No, where Drain's at? So low, but look at them now. They're fucking killing it. Even Section Hate. Magnitude. One Step Clover. Um, Kayanashi's first time they played the fest. To Peter's credit, he was helping out a lot at This Is Hark or with the Philly shows. And it was cool to kind of include them in this stuff. Um, Laid to Rest, the first time they played. Hangman, the first time they played. Queensway, another great Queensway set. Hoods, the first time we ever had Hoods. And then we had our lovely favorite reunion of Dinner Break, followed by Trail of Lies. Uh, Billy Cub Sandwich, that sing-along pile-up was so fucking sick. Down Presser from California's first time. Eco Strike, man, that was a wild set. And then, you know, we started getting to the older guy stuff, which is fucking great. Um, obviously, Wisdom and Chains is the standard. They're a standard bearer for hardcore in Pennsylvania. They've done so much. Their, their longevity shows people that you can continue doing your band at any stage. I fucking love them. That was an insanely awesome set. And then the trifecta, Agnostic Front, Into Off, <laughs> legendary Keith Morris, and saves a day. A great way to end it. Um, fixation into Vatican was pretty interesting. Uh, Jared's very short-lived project, Guillotine. That was the that's the tag team leader, jujitsu friend. Been in hardcore in Philadelphia forever. He sang in a band that started called Driven by, ended up being called Frontline. Uh, he had a new band with a couple different guys, and we were just like gonna hook our friend up. They had a set, and then right after them was Gulch, which is like a legendary set. Um, aggressive dogs featuring Uzi Wan. Uh, they're one of the oldest punk hardcore bands from Japan, and Uzi's a legend in Japanese hardcore. He's been fighting cancer. We've posted about him a bunch, talked about him a bunch. Uzi Wan is the man, and uh, it was very cool to have them a part of it. Regional Justice Center kind of kicked some shit off on the Twitter about no photographers. Then he was okay with it. Then they didn't show up. It was kind of weird. Um, Spine. Probably one of the coolest things Bridge Nine's put out in forever. Um, they were great. Um, no option played. Then um, that Eyes of the Lord project, I think that ended up being the last time, or they might have played one one more, one or two more times in L.A. or something, but it was cool to see Bruce and Eyes of the Lord. And then, again, a fucking Unbroken Wigs, man. That was wild. My boy John, Shattered Realm, and Unbroken Wigs played a lot of shows together. Um, again, Highlight real shit out of fucking regulate. Seb is by far one of the most talented frontmen in hardcore. Maximum penalty. Love it. Um, only time we get to do old firm casuals. Tried them a million times. Um, cool to see Lars doing it. Check out those records. Lars is really fantastic. I think he could do anything at this point. And then the last day set set by Death Rat. <laughs> get the fuck out of here. Even I was in that shit, man. That was fucking wild. Legendary breakdown shit. Love breakdown. Um, fantastic Chromax set. Literally, like one of my favorites that we've done. And we've done so many. And and I'll say this, like, yeah, you know, it's crazy when you have a Code Orange headliner. It's crazy when you have like the you know like the fucking um, Bird Alive headliner. But 
when you have your last couple bands, like the night before, it was like Saves a Day and Agnostic Front, Wisdom, everyone's singing along. Or when you end the weekend on Gorilla Biscuits and Stage Dives, everyone's singing. The vibe is just so fucking live and happy. And so, how to go back and look at this shit? How to go back and go, okay, where do we, where do we do last? What, what was the stuff? What was, what? And it's the, the thing about like Section Eight <laughs> playing first. It's like, you know, like these bands have grown so much just during, you know, like got to think about that was the end of July. That was the last weekend of July. So it was four months of 2019, and then we were into 2020, and then the pandemic. Just see the growth of some of these bands, and also see some of these bands break up is fucking in, insane to me. That the so much has moved, even though so little has happened in comparison to when we have a full calendar year. Considering the fact that besides the Thompson Square Park shows and um, the California shows that were happening with the Dead City Punks, and Alpha Omega and Section Hate in California, then the tsunami and all that gold stuff up there in the north. So Baba, like all that shit in the bay. A lot of hardcore's been on freeze for a long fucking time. And yet the the thing is still moving. The thing is still growing. And it gets old to see an inbox like, hey, hope there's a fest this year. And I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna try, man. Yeah, I'd love to try. Like I, it was starting to be a fucking broken record. But here I am. It's no longer a broken record. We're going to do this hardcore. It's happening. We're working off two separate weekends. So I can't tell you the dates yet. But we've always been between... The earliest we've ever been was the third weekend of July. But usually we're the last weekend of July in the recent time. And we started off in the middle of August. So we got a three or four week swing. But probably the latest it'll be will be the first week of August. And it might end up being the third week of July. Working on them now. We get certain bands. That's what it's going to be. But things got to work out certain ways. You can follow us at T-I-H-C Podcast, which is what you're listening to. We also have ThisIsHardcoreFest.com, which we should start updating because we've got new shit to talk about after what is now almost three years since the last one. And you can follow us at T-I-H-C Fest on Twitter. This is Hardcore Fest on Instagram, and this is Hardcore Fest at Facebook. I'm so glad that we got to talk about this. I'd love to get into more shit with you, but it's pertinent, important, up-to-date news, and we shelved an episode with an interview just to make sure this is out there. And I just hope you enjoy this one, and I hope that you understand that I was really feeling the pain of not doing them. And I feel an extra excitement because they're back and because I have the ability to work on this. And I'm going to give you the best effort that I physically can do. And I hope that you meet me in the middle and you support it. Or, you know, if you can't make it, just tell somebody about it. So thank you. And we'll be back to the interview styles of how we usually do things next week. Take care.